Hi everybody, my name is Bina007 and welcome to the eighth episode of the Vassals of Kingsgrave Agatha Christie reread series. Today we're going to be talking about her novel The Big Four, which was compiled, hmm, it's hard to tell, but certainly bears the imprint of a novel that was put together to earn money in the wake of her acrimonious and emotionally disturbing divorce and disappearance. An episode that we covered in our seventh episode, where we described her disappearance and everything that happened with that. Today, we're going to be discussing the big four, and this is a mini pod, which means that it's just me talking about it. It will be spoiler free, so you can go ahead and then read the novel if you like and have all the mysteries still intact. So this novel was published in 1927. It features Hercule Poirot, Captain Hastings, the, his sidekick who was packed off to the Argentine earlier, and Inspector Jap. So the, the, the key three are back. The book takes the format of a compendium or reworking of previously published short stories that were put out in 1924. So before actually the murder of Roger Ackroyd and then giving a sort of linking framing device that Hercule Poirot is up against this shadowy international organization called the Big Four. Unfortunately, this book has not been given good reviews either by Agatha Christie herself or by contemporary and current essayists. This is what Robert Barnard has to say about the Big Four. Quote, this thriller was cobbled together at the lowest point in Christie's life with the help of her brother-in-law, Charity is therefore the order of the day and is needed, for this is pretty dreadful, and, whatever one may think of him as a creation, demeaning to Poirot, end quote. I mean, goodness, how condescending is that? I mean, it is a shorter story than most of her novels, so most of them come in at sort of 320 pages in my paperback editions. This one is well under 300. You can definitely tell it's stitched together. Um, but actually, I was surprised on rereading it, and I haven't read it since, oh, maybe 20, 25 years ago, and how much I did enjoy it and how much the individual mysteries that Poirot was solving in the short stories were still intriguing and ingenious. And I and actually, the novel didn't feel as silly as some of the recent ones I've read. So what didn't feel as silly as um, The Secret of Chimneys, for example. I thought this was a much more straightforward murder mystery. So if you are a fan of Poirot and have not read this one, I think it is worth giving it a go. Um, that said, you might want to give it a miss. This is what um, Agatha Christie said of the Big Four in 1942. She was writing to her book agent um, and asking him to keep a manuscript in reserve, so keep a novel in reserve and not publish it. We think it might have been sleeping murder. And this is what she said, quote, I have been once in a position where I wanted to write just for the sake of money coming in. And when I felt I couldn't, it is a nerve wracking feeling. If I had one manuscript up my sleeve, it would have made a big difference. That was the time I had to produce that rotten book, The Big Four, and had to force myself in the mystery of the blue train, end quote. So 
let's debate whether it has good quality and until you read it you can make your own assessment I actually think this is better than I expected and I definitely think there are worse books in the earth that we have read to date but I do think it's really worth reading apart from that because it does tell us what people were paranoid about in the 1920s in the interwar years and fascinatingly um, it wasn't necessarily what you would imagine So it is a paranoid time. I mean, it's a paranoia level that Hitler's going to go on to exploit. I feel that this book is almost proto-James Bond, insofar as in those early James Bond novels um, that are published just after World War II, you often have this multinational consortium of crime, (laughs) so Spectre, who were there just to cause anarchy, just to cause chaos, to make money through crime. They don't have a sort of overarching political aim. They're not communists or fascists. They're there to sow discontent. And that's absolutely the motive of the big four here. They are here to manipulate people, to cause chaos and to make money. They also, in a proto-bond move, have a underground layer, or rather there is a mountain in the Dolomites where they have carved out a layer, which I think is very James Bond. And I did wonder rather whether Ian Fleming had read The Big Four as one of his inspirations. You also have, rather uncharacteristically, which I think is why people don't like this book, you know, we've met Hercule Poirot in the previous novel as a retired guy, rather pernickety, he lets his little gray cells do the, the the working. But here, he's a man of action. You know, he's jumping out of a train in chapter one. Uh, Captain Hastings and Poirot get kidnapped at various points. He uses poison darts. There are gas bombs. I mean, he really is um, less like a sort of an old, um, pernickety old detective than a kind of proto-James Bond. And it is absolutely hilarious to see that. In terms of the different stories that are stitched together, we have lots of murder mysteries to solve. We start off with a mystery man who is killed with prussic acid, so the classic Agatha Christie using poisons. We have a chap called uh, Robert Grant who is in Dartmoor and he has his throat slit. We have the disappearance of a science called Halliday in Paris who's been kidnapped. We have another person um, being threatened with a poisoned dart with curare in it. We have an ambush in a quarry. Um, We have people being killed, um, potentially poisoned, who knows, at a chess game. We have a hit and run, poor Flossie Monroe. We have someone who's poisoned with antinomy. I think that's how you pronounce it. So there's all sorts going on. There's multiple little mysteries. The linking story is that they're all being committed by agents of the big four. So who are the big four? Um, The first one that we know of is a mysterious Chinaman called Li Chang Yen, um, who is kind of what we know of him is very shadowy, but we're told at various points that he is the big power in China. Remember, this is a China before communism on the verges of civil war. Maybe, I think, influenced by the Fu Manchu stories of Sax Rona, In a sense, he's a frighteningly proto-Mengele, Dr. Mengele figure, because we hear that he's doing all sorts of horrific experiments on Chinese slave labour. So a very shadowy figure who we don't meet till the very end. He's kept in reserve. He is the kind of the brain and the power behind the Big Four. We then have a member of the Big Four that is represented by a dollar sign. So 
is American, um, and I'm not going to reveal the identity, although it is revealed quite early. And I think it's very typical of Agatha Christie, as we've learned, that when she thinks of money, it's often not negative, but it is often American. So you've got the the power of the East, the brains in the East, the capital from the West. Um, You then have a female figure, Madame Olivier, who is a French scientist. And we're told that she has somehow done some kind of atomic research that bypasses the kind of Madame Curie research and that she has harnessed atomic power. So again, very proto-World War II and the idea that you could create an atomic bond that would radically upend geopolitical power. So again, I think Agatha Christie very prescient on matters of geopolitics and science here. And then there is a fourth member of the big four who remains very shadowy until the end. And he's known as the destroyer. And he is a master of disguise and the person who is carrying out a lot of the assassinations that I mentioned in my list of of murder mysteries that we have to solve. So you've got Eastern brains, Western capital, European science, and then the destroyer who, as with many Agatha Christie's, if you're looking for someone who's a master of disguise and also a murderer, you often have to look at the acting profession. Um, We also have, as a sidekick of the baddies, you've got Countess Vera Rusakov, who we've seen in an earlier short story. She's kind of the Irene Adler figure. For those of you who know Sherlock Holmes, this is still early um, Agatha Christie. She's still very um, influenced, evidently, by the Sherlock Holmes story. And um, she is, Count Vera Rusakov is a bit of a love interest for Elkul Poirot back in the distant past. And in what is a very explicit nod to Sherlock Holmes, we have a twin brother to Hercule Poirot called, I would say in English, Achilles. Is it Achille in French? Um, who's clearly modelled on Mycroft Holmes. And Hercule Poirot at some point winks to the reader and says, don't you know, Captain Hastings, that all genius detectives have a have a brother who is far more clever but indolent? Um, so Agatha Christie knows exactly what she's doing here. As I've said, I actually think these stories work pretty well. And there's one or two of them that are really ingenious and really fun to read. And it's a quick read, so why not give it a go? As with all Agatha Christie, as I said, I think it speaks to its times. And I think the paranoia of changing geopolitics and certainly the the instability in China that would lead to that civil war and the communist revolution definitely coming through. And unfortunately, as with all Agatha Christie, it is of its time in terms of how it represents people of different races and um, relations between the sexes. So, for instance, the Chinese member of the big four is seen as experimenting on quote unquote coolies, which is obviously a very offensive but historically accurate term for Asian slave labor. But it still kind of brings you up. It's a bit like reading the word kafir um, when you read some of her South African set novels. It does bring you up short. Far more pervasively, you have description of various people from China in this novel And you see the kind of casual kind of racism of some of the people in the book. So, you know, Inspector Jap refers to someone from China as a chink. Very offensive. We would regard that nowadays. And it refers to his him speaking in his language as sing song, that they are passive. Various characters refer to them as heathens. Um, So obviously, while Agatha has great respect for the Chinese villain as being incredibly clever, 
There are a lot of cliches that come through in the description of Chinese people in this novel that are very much of their time and, and rather offensive now. There's also something in this novel that I've never seen in another Agatha Christie novel to date, and I'm not sure we're going to see again, which is a kind of disrespect and disregard for the working classes. And I do rather wonder if this came from her brother-in-law who helped her write this novel, because most of the time in Agatha Christie novels, um, you know, she doesn't spend a lot of time with the servant class, but where she does, she's very you know, she sees them as active and necessary parts of society. And there's no disrespect for people who are in poverty or who are poor. But here there is a, a quote, a typical London urchin, grimy of face and ragged of apparel, end quote, which strikes me as a rather mean way to discuss a young poor child. And there's some relish taking in describing the quote, squalid, an unsavoury block of flats where poor Flossie lived um, in London. So there's almost like a sneering tone about the working classes, which I don't see in her other novels. And therefore, yeah, it took me by surprise. And I, I wonder if that's really her. Nonetheless, she let it pass. So, um, you know, accountability must be there. As with always with Captain Hastings, there's a bit of casual misogyny about a female scientist. I think that is Agatha Christie telling us that, as always, Captain Hastings is an ass, so I'm not going to take that as her attitude. I think overall, actually, this is a less egregiously offensive novel than some of the other earlier ones. I think she's growing out of a lot of that. But it was interesting to see the first example, really, of a lot of Chinese characters and how maybe in the 1920s, when most people in England had never met someone from China, unless they lived in London or one of the port cities, how it would be easy to have some quite lazy cliches. It's, it's, a, it's a good reminder to us 100 years later of how pervasive these um, conscious um, sort of racist caricatures can be. So hopefully I've, I've told you that it's, it's a romp. You know, there's lots of different mysteries. It moves really quickly. You've got this kind of James Bond style arch villain and this final showdown in a mountain lair that's very Dr. No. I think it is really worth reading and really fun. If you don't want to read it, you can watch the adaptation. But the adaptation has a rather different tone. It's part of that British ITV series with David Suchet starring as Hercule Poirot. And they filmed all of their, the Poirot novels. But they did this very late in the run. Um, even though it's one of the earlier stories, because I think they did all the classic ones first, right? And then they, when they decided they want to be complete, then they went back to some of the quote-unquote weaker ones. It's interesting because actually it was written or adapted by Mark Gatiss. He is on the record as saying that the book is an unadaptable mess, which I think is very unfair, because actually in some ways his book is rather, his adaptation is rather faithful to the book. He alights on a couple of the mysteries, in particular, for those of you who've read it, the one with the chess player is pretty faithfully done. The murder that involves the Chinese figurines and the heater is pretty faithfully done. And the overarching sort of plot of the big four is there. So he has kept to it. It has a more somber tone because he uses the framing device of the main characters gathering at a big seminal event. Um, that is triggered by an action that Hercule Poirot takes. Um, I'm being very vague, you'll know it when you read it, which is sombre in tone and, and that kind of really colours the adaptation and also the fact that they're older. So he ha he strips away all the James Bondian jumping out of trains and throwing of bombs and, you know, all the stuff that would seem very unlikely for actual Hercule Poirot and certainly David Suchet 
as he reached the end of his run. Also, potentially for budget reasons, they take away the big showdown in the mountain, which I thought was rather a shame. Maybe they don't do it because they also find it silly, but frankly, I find the solution they come up with also rather non-credible and silly. I think the idea of a worldwide conspiracy from a spectre-like criminal organisation far more convincing than what they show in this adaptation. I won't tell you what they do because you can watch it and therefore have the the joy of the surprise ending. But um, yeah, if you do watch it, um, drop us a note on our Discord server, drop a note on the WordPress blog and let us know what you think because, um, yeah, I'm not sure it really adds up for me. But anyway, that's all I want to say about The Big Four. It's often dismissed by Agatha Christie herself, by lots of reviewers, by Mark Gatiss. I still think it's worth your time. I still think it works as a mystery novel. I hope you'll give it a go. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. On the next episode, the next mini pod, we'll be discussing the mystery of the blue train, which actually is one of my favourite Hercule Poirot novels, partly because it's set on one of those beautiful, luxurious trains that still crisscross Europe and seem to me impossibly glamorous. But whatever you're reading this weekend, I hope you really enjoy it. And I hope to see you back next time. Bye, everyone. Thank you.